Good morning, church. My name is Brett. I'm pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, and especially our guests. Welcome. Merry Christmas to you. Glad you are here. We're going to continue our Christmas series, and we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 7. Uh, The title of the message is Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Isaiah chapter 7. Verses 10 through 15. Isaiah 7, verses 10 through 15. It says, Then the Lord spoke to, again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz, verse 12, said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Listen now, O house of David, Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Verse 14, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And he will eat curds and honey at a time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. Lord, help as we study. Talk about three things in this passage. One, man's resistance to God's persistence and Emmanuel's resilience. The background is that Ahaz is a really bad king. Judah, for the most part, has good kings, for the most part. Israel to the north, there were two kingdoms at this time that made up the people of Israel to the north, never had one good king. They had one king who was not as bad as the rest, Jehu, but none of them were good. Judah had a bunch of good kings. Ahaz was not one of them. But Ahaz had had heritage. At least he didn't have an excuse. His grandpa was Uzziah. And Uzziah was a fabulous king. Didn't end very well, but he had a really good reign. And the longest of all the kings, 52 years. Jotham, Uzziah's son, was also a good king though he did not destroy the high places, but he was a good king. Ahaz, can't figure him out. Table was set. When you got a grandpa who's right, you got a daddy who's right, for the most part, they have laid it out for you, boy. All you got to do is right. That's all you got to do is right. But Ahaz wouldn't do right. You can't blame the parents all the time. You can't blame the parents all the time. Now, simply because you can't blame them doesn't mean they're not responsible. <laughs> Sorry, parents. <laughs> you thought I just left you off the hook. No, no. We, we will always be responsible. We just may not be able to be blamed. You'll always feel something that I need to do more. Ahaz was a mess. He sacrificed his children to foreign gods and fire. He didn't worship the Lord. Had no regard for the prophets of his day, and he had one of the best. You're not going to get any better than Isaiah. Now, Isaiah was not what Elijah or Elisha was. Prophets to the north, in the northern kingdom, they had power and calling fire down from heaven and raising the dead. They, they were something. Now, we don't have much in terms of messianic prophecy from those two, but we have gifts and signs that were unusually bestowed upon prophets like this. Those things usually had come with people who were both 
rulers and uh, prophets like Moses. Um, none of the kings had this kind of power like Elijah and Elisha had. They were amazing. But Isaiah's primary gift was just speaking. It was having the word of God and making sure the people knew it to be true. And again, he was one of the best. And he was Ahaz's personal voice piece. His personal access to God. And Ahaz would not listen to Isaiah. And Isaiah, it's not that Isaiah would give Ahaz cause not to listen to him. I mean, this, this was a pure man. He wasn't just functionally on, on point. He was intimately on point in relationship with God. One chapter prior, Uzziah, the king who had the longest reign in all of Judah, had passed away. And Isaiah is a young man at this time. And he's the only king he's ever known. In fact, when you reign 50 years, that's probably the only king 90% of the population has ever known. And when he passes, it's a national mourning event. You don't know exactly whether the next king is really going to be really good. What's the administration going to be like? Is he going to accept me? Though Uzziah and his son Jotham had co-regency, meaning they reigned at the same time for a period, you know, sometimes kids can do right because dad's watching. But when dad leaves, all of a sudden, so they don't know. Isaiah's in the temple in Isaiah chapter 6. And it says, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I found myself in the house of God. And the Lord filled the temple. The glory filled the temple. And the train of his robe was all over the place. And he said, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Isaiah was the prophet of the day. And he says his lips are unclean. If his lips were unclean, and he was the main prophet, What was the rest of the nation like? Everybody thought he was right. And if his lips weren't right, my goodness. And and he wasn't just being self-deprecating. His lips really weren't right. Though everybody else thought he was right. So unright were his lips. that an angel shows up. And and there, there happened to be this altar. Upon which were coals. Hot coals. White hot coals. And the angel took some tongs and picked up the coal. One of them. Now when an angel has to use tongs. The Bible says that they themselves are are ministers and flames of fire for God. And he has to use tongs. My question is, when he picks those togs up and then picks up one of the coals, what you doing with that? Wait, 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 wait. And he's coming toward me. He would have to chase me all around the church. I'm telling you, I'm just letting you know. You got to be kidding me. I mean, I know my lips are unclean, but are they that bad? Really? And he took the coal and touched Isaiah's lips. That's how unclean they were, though he was God's mouthpiece. And this is a man who submitted to God at the deepest levels of consecration because all he wanted to do was speak his word and represent him well. I'm laying that out to let you know what what Ahaz had. Ahaz the king had this man as his personal prophet. 
and he didn't receive them. Ahaz was messed up. The circumstances around which this prophetic word comes are those which are very, very shaking. Rezin, the king of Aram, who's a neighboring country, and Pekah, the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, the sister kingdom of Judah, are now aligned against the kingdom of Judah. In verses 1 through 9, it says that they are so powerful and have laid siege to the city for the most part that the entire nation of Judah began to, to shake as leaves in the wind. They were afraid. Then you've got to superimpose 2 Kings 15 and 2 Chronicles 28 over this event because we see how Ahaz responded not just to Isaiah but to the circumstance. And it says that Ahaz went to the king of Assyria and said, come protect me against the king of Israel and the king of Aram. He, he, has, he has Isaiah right here who has the word of the Lord. And he goes to somebody else to try to find help. Why is it when we are the authors of our own demise and God comes to offer help, we won't take it? He has completely messed up his entire life. And the Lord has come to the rescue. The cavalry has ridden over the hill. And he's saying, I'm going to help you. In fact, in the prior verses, in the same chapter, he says, don't worry about these two smoldering firebrands. I got them. These jokers won't hurt you. When Rezin goes back, he's going to be killed, by the way, when he goes back home. And the kingdom of Samaria, in 65 years, it won't even be a nation. Don't worry about it. I got this. Ahaz says nothing in response. Nothing. Isaiah says, just believe. And will this not occur for you? All you've got to do is believe. Just believe. No response from Ahaz. Elijah, excuse me, Elijah. Isaiah even gives a prophetic word with respect to dates. And he says, in 65 years... This kingdom, Samaria, will not be on the planet anymore. This prophetic word started, we think, about 736 B.C. And at 671 B.C., the last people of the kingdom of Israel had been deported by Assyria. They were no more in the land. 65 years to the date. And that's not taken from Israel's history. That's taken from Assyria's history. They began to beat up the Israelite nation the northern kingdom in 712 B.C., and the last deportees were taken in 671. Here, Isaiah is saying, I'm giving you, I'm giving you a, 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 a way to understand my credibility. I tell you, if it's going to happen at a certain date, then I'm a prophet. If it happens, and if, if it doesn't happen then, then I'm not a prophet. He gave him a date. I'm telling you the truth. Therefore, if I say anything else, it would behoove you to listen to me. Now, he's not saying that, but I'm saying that for him. But Ahaz won't listen. That's why Elijah says, just believe in verses 1 through 9. Just believe. No response. This is where we get to verse 10, where it says, and the word of the Lord came again. Aren't you glad God doesn't give up on you? Every part of this passage is about God's persistence. He just keeps running after you. You remember that time when you heard that preacher when you were about seven? You figured it out. I mean, you, you could understand what the preacher was saying now. 
and you knew it was for you, but, but, but you were focused on those new Nikes. You just met this pretty little girl in the first grade, and you were thinking, where is she sitting in church? Where is she? Where is she? And you waited until you were 14, and you heard it again. But you were too, school, too cool for school then. And, and you just kept hearing, and you did not respond. Ahaz did not respond, so the word of the Lord came to him again, and God said it like this. Ask for a sign. Make it as high as heaven or as deep as shale. Just tell me, what you, is there anything I need to do to prove myself to you? God rarely gives that invitation to anybody. And Ahaz wouldn't take it. He said, I will not ask the Lord, nor will I test him. That wasn't a sign of humility, saying I'm going to believe him in spite of my unwillingness to ask. That was one of these. We're in trouble. If God were really for us, he would have helped us. In fact, it says over in 2 Kings 15 and 2 Chronicles 28 that he actually went and after this moment began to seek after the gods of Aram because he said, well, if those gods were stronger than our nation and it made me petition the king of Assyria to come and help me, maybe I need to worship those gods. Again, when we are the authors of our own demise, why do we blame him? Here was an opportunity for Ahaz to be right. And don't we, after we have messed up our life, ultimately begin to say, God, why did you do this to me? Where are you? If you were real, I wouldn't be in this. Oh, you haven't said that before. If you loved me, you surely wouldn't have let this happen to me. When you have crafted your own prison, you have devised your own arrows into your own soul. You have shot holes in your own boat. And when God comes to you and said, this is a prescription. Listen to me, I'm trying to help you. No, I won't do it. He was mad. Because he was in this situation and he thought God needed to deliver him anyway. Even if he had done bad, even if he had done wrong, even if he had laid out the, the demise for his own nation. God, you should have helped me so that this nation shouldn't have come. I'm mad at you for not delivering me when I needed deliverance. Well, I'm trying to do it now. No, 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 forget it too late. It's... it's um. It's, it's one of these, Lord, I'm going to go, somebody begins to give you some financial advice and says, you know, tithing would be really good for you. Be really good. You, I know it's difficult, and, and, but, but God says when you tithe, good things begin to happen. He begins to bless you. And, and all of a sudden, you'll begin to see increase in your life, your personal life, all your finances. God will begin to pour back on you. And, and you listen, you say, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm going to go get a loan. Yeah, I'm going to go get a loan. Uh-huh. Now, I'm not against a loan. Don't have an issue with that. I got a loan on my house. But Ahaz said, I'm not going to listen to God. I'm going to Assyria and find help. I'm going to use the arm of 
flesh. I'm going to figure out a way naturally to fix my problem. And God's offering you a spiritual solution. And you reject it because the only thing you know to do is to go to the natural. God's persistence, though. I mean, Ahaz was resistant, but God's persistence. He said, okay, is it too much for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, I'll give you a sign all by myself. A virgin will be with child, and you will call his name Emmanuel. This is the first time we have a picture of how the Messiah was to come and in what form he was to come. The scholars had to piece together a number of prophecies over the eons to try to figure out what he looked like, but this was central. And some will say, well, it really doesn't talk about a supernatural birth because the word for virgin is the exact same word in the Hebrew for maiden. So a maiden will be with child, and we will call his name Emmanuel. Okay, well, the skeptics say that's the way it ought to be read. The problem is this. Maiden simply means somebody who wasn't married that is now married and has a child. How is that a sign? That's the way everybody does it. Ain't nothing unusual about that. Every woman gets married and has babies. So what would be unusual about this? Sometimes our doubt and unbelief can begin to lead right into stupid. You, 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 simply because you don't want to believe doesn't mean it gives you the right to make stuff up <laughs> to justify your unbelief that's not very smart don't let your doubt and unbelief lead into stupid because that, that doesn't make any sense at all God wouldn't say I'm going to give you a sign a woman's going to have a baby <laughs> do you know how many women there are that name their babies Emmanuel Especially in the Latino world. <laughs> what would be unusual about that? The sign is that it's a virgin. Meaning that in the midst of our doubt and unbelief, God said, I'm going to save you all by myself. I'm going to save you all by myself. I'm going to send help even when you don't want help. Jesus came when we were sinners. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for our sin. None of us woke up one day and said, Lord, today is a good day to get saved. I think I'm going to love you. That didn't happen. God came while we were ignorant, while we were wrong, in the midst of our doubt and unbelief and our resistance, and said, I'm going to save you all by myself. And there's no way it could happen except that it happened this way. That a virgin would be with child. Had to be a virgin. Because you can't combine the seed of a woman and the seed of a man and get anything other than you. Me, that's all you get. Now, we might be better versions of humanity than other versions of humanity, but we are all sinners. Unable to save ourselves, much less anybody else. So that's not going to fix it. No matter what name you slap on your child. <laughs> they ain't going to fix it. I 
got one of my boys. Middle name is Emmanuel. He ain't nothing like God. Ain't nothing like God. Nothing like God. One of the best kids you will ever meet, but ain't nothing like God. It's not that one. It's not that one. It's not that one. It's not that one. It's my, my fifth boy. My fifth boy. He's a fabulous kid, too. Virgin will be with child. God, God had to allow his word to be implanted in the, the womb of a, of a woman. And in doing so, he became wholly human without denying any of his godness, without losing a bit of it. He became God with us, a virgin. And it, 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 you, you couldn't do it any other. He had to be fully God. And by the way, there's no such thing as being half God, half man. You, you, you can't be, either you are God or you're not. And either you are human or you're not. He was holy God. And holy, he was God with us in human flesh. It's the only way it could happen. And in doing so, the Lord said, I'm not only going to give you a sign today, but it is going to be a sign forever. So that everybody who looks back in history and reads the scripture can understand that salvation came from my hand and my hand alone. Now the incarnation, theology is called the hypostatic union. The ability for God to become man and join the two without compromising either. And everybody thought it was impossible to do. God was so other and we were so not. There's no way the two could come together. But God realized the only way I can save humanity is if I am fully human and fully God. Fully God being unable to sin yet fully human having a body to sacrifice for humanity. Animals, the blood of bulls and goats couldn't fix it. All they could do is push back sin. Animal sacrifice was important, but it was both a stereotype of, of, of what a, a, proto, a stereotype of what was to come, an example of how blood needed to be sacrificed, something innocent to pay for the sin of mankind, but animals weren't enough. Somebody had to die. Somebody had to pay the sacrifice. Somebody had to pay the penalty. But nobody was able to do it because we were all sinful. Meaning that we needed to die for our own sin. We couldn't die for anybody else. None of us. The most altruistic and benevolent person, even if they came to God and said, I want to die for the sin of mankind. God would have to ask the question, do you have any that, that you need to die for yourself? Have you committed any sin? Well, yeah. Well, sorry, you disqualified. <laughs> Completely disqualified for dying for everybody else because you have to die for your own. So the only way he could do it was to wrap himself up in a body so that that body could now become stainless, spotless, perfect, without blemish. The lamb's sacrifice for our benefit and take away the sin of the world. Born of a virgin. This, this incarnation, this is all Christmas is about. I love giving. I love the atmosphere. Most wonderful time of the year. I love it. I love it. I love it. Christmas is just great. 
these, these, these 30 days between Thanksgiving and Christmas are just the best of the year. But he's happier, more kind. I love it. But a lot of it doesn't have anything to do with Christmas. I'm glad for it. But everything about Christmas is about God becoming man to save us. That's what it's about. The distance he came to get you. It was long. He gave up so much. Didn't give up his godness. You can't do that. If you're God, you can't stop being God. So he was God always. Yet he became human. And Paul, in 1 Timothy, talks about this, this beautiful mixture of God and man. But he does it so smartly. He's in the middle of giving his testimony to Timothy. And he's talking about how he's unworthy of receiving a calling, much, much less salvation, to, to go out and minister this gospel. And has the privilege of going to heaven. He says, I was the foremost of sinners. Nobody was like me. I was the worst. I persecuted the church. I had ill intent for everybody who called themselves believers. I was doing everything I could to try to wipe out this, this institution that was beloved of God. And, and, and somehow he, he thought I would be a good representative. Eh, makes no sense, but he called me. And he made me an example that, that I, the foremost of sinners, might be an example for everybody else. That if he could do it for me, he could do it for you. Now that's Brett's paraphrase in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And, and Paul's speaking. All of the letters, and almost all, Galatians, he says, look with what large letters I write with my own hand. So he wrote Galatians with his own hand, but most of the letters uh, that, that we have, the epistles, are, are spoken. And they are transcribed by a scribe. Somebody who would write down what he said. So Paul is speaking these things. And somebody's writing in shorthand. And as he's speaking, he's speaking like I'm speaking. And all of a sudden, you get this sense that, that he's, he's, getting, he's waxing eloquent. And emotions are beginning to flow because he's telling his testimony of how good God has been to him. And he didn't deserve it. And he was the foremost of sinners. Yet God's patience showed grace with him so that he might be an example to everybody else about what it means to be saved. And that your sin cannot be a, a barrier to you getting right or doing great things for him. And he's getting emotional about it. He says, now... Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory forever and ever. Amen. So that's the last, last verse of, of, of chapter 1 of, of Timothy, verse 17. And it, it becomes a doxology for the church, meaning a statement of liturgy and theology that is quick and short that can be memorized so that you can understand something that would take books for you to understand, but you can understand it in a very short phrase, doxology. And you're supposed to memorize it and restate it over and over again. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, to him be glory now and forever. In Paul's emotion, when he gets really, you know, it starts overflowing and he gets happy and just feeling it in God, Paul gets smarter when he gets emotional. Which is distinguishing from most people who get dumber when they get emotional. You get so emotional, I don't know what to say. I just, I'm just feeling so much for you right now. I just, I just, I just, you know what I mean? I just, I just, I just, 
Yeah, it's like that. Yeah. Or in the church when they get emotional, they start dancing around and jumping, and I ain't mad about that. But they don't know how in the world to let their emotion, emotional stimulation benefit anybody else but themselves. And Paul is never not a leader. He is always a leader. And so what he's going through, he's trying to help other people go through with him. So when he gets feeling about this thing and he's grateful to God for his salvation, he begins to wax eloquent about the incarnation, the hypostatic union. Now to the king eternal. When he talks about the king in the New Testament, it's always about the Messiah. The king, Jesus, Messiah, the one who would come and reign and rule over his people. And he says the king eternal. So that gives us a picture that Jesus Christ was God the Son long before he was Jesus the baby and being God he has to be eternal because God can't ever be created because if God can be created then whoever created God is God because anything that is created can be destroyed and God can never be destroyed so he always has been always will be now to the king eternal and eternity is something that's very difficult for our minds to wrap itself around because we like things that have a start yeah, we don't want them to end if they're really good, but we want them to have a start. Eternity has no start. He just always has been, and that's one of the distinguishing characteristics that makes him God. And even though you don't understand it, simply because you don't understand it doesn't mean you need to be confused by it and thereby get filled with doubt and unbelief about whether he is. When you come to the place where your intellect must stop, then you raise your hands and say, I worship. That is not an excuse to stop your intellect short. You need to press and find out as much as your brain can find out about who God is. But there is a stopping point because he is always greater than our brain or our aggregate wisdom. And so when we get to that spot, rather than saying, I can't figure it out, so it must not be true. We say, oh, you are amazing. You are God Almighty, and I can put my anchor in that truth right there because you will never change. You always have been. You always will be. You are the same. You're the only thing in this world that remains the same. Eternal. But then he says, now to the king eternal, immortal. Now immortal and eternal are necessarily antithetical. Neither one of them have an end. But if you're eternal, you can't have a beginning. But immortal means you have a start but not an end. So how can you be eternal and immortal? Except you be God wrapped in a human body. That is the only way. Oh, he's getting smarter when he gets emotional. Talking about this is, a, this is a God who saved me. This is how he saved me. He was God eternal and one day wrapped himself up in a human body. And he became immortal. He can hold both in the same time. Invisible. Meaning he's other in a human body. After he got up out of that grave, something happened to this physical body. Though we are forever represented in heaven by who he is, forever, which is really good. So you'll have some identification when you go to glory. Beyond just grandma being there, you'll, you'll be able to see Jesus. And he will have a human body. You'll say, man, he knows what I went through. Wow, that's great. Forever is our flesh represented in glory. But it's a different kind of flesh. He could pop in and out of rooms without going through doors. He was amazing. Supernatural. And this speaks of his rising from the dead. 
that death could not hold him. That something happened whereby life sprung through all the flesh and produced something that has never been. He's invisible. Yet he's just like us, but he's different than us, but just like us. Again, worship. Worship. Can't figure it all out. I don't know how it works, but I worship. I just great. The only God, to him be glory and honor forever. There is nobody else who has ever done this. And I don't care what people tell you with respect to religions being compatible. This is the only one. The only one who prescribes this. Emmanuel. Emmanuel, I will send you a sign myself. Though you are full of doubt and unbelief, I'll do it all by myself. That's how much I care about you. You're not even asking me, but I love you enough to save you anyway. That's our God. And then we see Emmanuel's resilience. Though he was fully God at some point while he was on the planet, he came to the cognizance of who he was. Now, he had to go through all the stuff of ignorance. And this is what he had to give up. He was, he was omniscient. He knew everything as being God the Son. But when he, when he became a baby, he became an ignorant baby. Didn't know a thing. Now he had to have his creation teach him what 2 plus 2 equals. So he was dependent. He gave up his omnipotence in that he was weak now. And he gave up his omnipresence and many other things he gave up in order to become what we needed so that we could be saved. But at some point he had to come to the realization. That cognitive moment, I don't know, 7, 8, 12, where mama and him had a conversation. And uh, when Mary was praying, she was talking to Jesus. (laughs) Yeah, I know. That's kind of mind-blowing, isn't it? Jesus, take out the trash, please. (laughs) How do you do that? How do you do that? Talk to God very respectfully in your own house. Some cognizant, something where awareness just hits him. And now he's got to make a decision every day. Am I going to go through this? Do I love these people? Is this worth it? Especially when he began his ministry and nobody respected him. People talking bad about him, lying on him, not knowing what he... not knowing what he went through to get them. What he sacrificed to save them. You talk about feeling underappreciated. Every day he had to wake up. And this is the part where Isaiah is talking about God with us. It's not just God with us, but it's man with us. He will eat curds and honey at a time when he knows to refuse evil and choose good. What that means is this. He's going to be a human being just like you and me. He's going to be God with us, but he's not going to be just God. He's going to have needs, he's going to have to eat, and he's going to have to be taught, and he's going to have to make choices like humans make choices. 
Everything about this passage talks about the incarnation. And somehow or another, Jesus, by, by God's grace, just said yes every day. I'm going to go through this. I'm going to do this. Oh, he had his moment. Not moments. Moment. Lord, if it be your will, let this cup pass. Let this cup pass. And it wasn't so much about whether he didn't want to, want to die on the cross. That wasn't the issue. I'm convinced that the issue was, I don't want to be separate from you. And there's something that, that's coming through this whole ordeal of sacrificing myself and becoming sin on behalf of my people that's going to separate from you. And I've never been separated from you. I don't want that. If there's any other way that we don't have to go through that moment when you say, I got to turn my back. And I say, why have you forsaken me? I don't want that. But he said, not my will, but yours. This is what it meant for him to, to constantly redecide, if you will, is it worth it? And may we as people superimpose our life over this moment here and say, if we are going to be what we need to be to our community, help us to be the best version they have ever seen of God being on the planet. Help us to be that to them. Waking up every day, saying what a privilege it is, our God, to be able to serve humanity like this. Not complaining, but rejoicing, even in our difficulty, that we have been given the privilege to suffer with him and for him. Emmanuel, God with us. God has sent his son for your benefit. Have you received what he has sent? Let's pray.